Okay, is that too loud? That's okay. I hope by the end of today, you'll, you'll realize exactly why um, learning this stuff that seems arcane and complicated is critical for us understanding who Jesus, what Jesus ultimately represents for us. Okay, so this is going to seem a little bit weird because this is a lot of antiquated Jewish um, arcane priestly lore and festivals, but I do want to tell you it informs the New Testament understanding of what Jesus' life and death mean for us. And I've got some good surprises for you, I think. I think they're good. So um, I, I thought it might be helpful actually to, to start... It, this was not the most exciting reading, I just wanted to admit, right? Uh, a lot of it was really weird, and you'll notice when I told you way back that scholars have these letters that they use, J, E, D, and P, most of this comes from letter P. And the only people, honestly, who would have read this were the only people who were literate and the people in charge of doing it. These are for the priests. Uh, this is really exciting, and I want you to know, if you, only if you're a priest, if you're a regular person, this is not exciting for you at all. This is what you do on festival days, and the truth is, that's what religion really meant 3,000 years ago. See, since the Reformation particularly, we've got this idea that religion informs our everyday life and our ethics and how we treat other people. That was not at all the way people approached religion in the ancient world. In the ancient world, whether you were Greek or Canaanite or in general Hebrew, religion was about what you did at the temple or at the tabernacle, and then you went home and you just lived. They were very, very discreet. So during the Roman Empire, you hear about these gods, you know, there's, there's Ares and there's Jupiter and all this sort of business. That was really what priests did, and you offered animals, and then you just went home. And it didn't matter what you did at the temple compared to what you did in everyday life. They really were separate things. Curiously enough, the people in Judaism who were most interested in religion and forming their everyday life. Does anybody know who this was? It's a group we hear about in the New Testament, and usually they get, they get kind of... That's the Pharisees. Now, we usually think Pharisees are hypocrites, but they were the group at the time of Jesus interested in having their religion order the way they lived with all other people, too. They thought their theology informed their politics. They thought their theology should inform their giving and their resources. At the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were the people that you could look to to help you in times of need. The people who did not share that were the ones, what do you know, in charge of the temple. I don't know if you know what those people are called. They're called the Sadducees. The Pharisees are the people who are reading the books, like I told you last week in the Torah, the books called the Navim and the Ketubim. The prophets, 1 and 2 Samuel, Joshua, Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, the Sadducees stop at Deuteronomy, and that's all they read. And, and by now you're noticing, okay, the only stories really are in Genesis, half of Exodus. There are a few stories in Numbers, and the rest is like priestly duties. The bulk of it is priestly duties. 
the Sadducees were priests. That's what they did. Some Pharisees were probably priests too, but again, they represented this sort of new development that what you do in the sanctuary informs what you do everywhere you go. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Um, some and some not. So the, the, the Levites come from Moses, and the priests come from Aaron. Now just think through, they're brothers. But their lineage gets bifurcated this way, and it's really easy, I mean, interesting to think about. Aaron means ark in Hebrew, right? So the Aaronites are the ark people. Moses is not like Aaron. Uh, Moses really represents the people. Aaron is sort of this other person who's like the mediator. I mean, really, when you think about it, Aaron and the priests are really like the pre-1976 prayer book people that faced the wall. They were mediating on behalf of the people to God. They were really important as the mediators. Moses, though, and the Levites are really the priests who face the people. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. They are among the people. So really, the, the descendants of Aaron follow the tabernacle. The Levites live wherever you live. And the Levites' really main job, 90% of their time, is butchery. Do you notice the injunction we read? Mm, I think it's in Leviticus. Nobody slaughters animals except for priests and Levites. Now, this sounds really weird, because what happens when you're hunting in the forest and you shoot a deer? <laughs> you better get it to the priest real fast. <laughs> I mean, that's it. That's the deal. Did people do that? Doubtful. I mean, let's just be honest. But if it's a raised animal, you better get it to the priest or the Levite. And of course, what they do is still, you can see this, there's, there's, there's folks who, who slaughter um, kosher animals. And um, it's interesting because we think for a long time we thought this was awful, but um, you know, they, they slit the animal's throat basically, but they, they do it with like a razor sharp knife. And a lot of folks are saying it's the most humane way to kill an animal that there is. You know, at Hormel in Greeley, Colorado, they shoot the animal in the head with a bolt, and then they hang it upside down and they stick it in the throat. And it's automated, and it misses frequently. Both of those things miss. Uh, it's really terrible. Um, this is a human being actually doing the killing and praying over the animal. Uh, I don't know if you're into all that business, but that continues to be how it is today. So if something is kosher meat, especially if it's glott kosher meat, it's been killed by somebody's hand with a razor-sharp knife. And that's the Levite's job. And then they, they chop it up into cuts. And notice, they get some. It's a pre-monetary economy. It's important to remember. They didn't have coins. You had flax. I had barley. We traded. <laughs> uh, the Levite offers a service, and they get some of the cut. That's the deal. I also thought it would be helpful to tell you up front a little bit about Canaanite religion so that you know sort of how the practices are different. You, you can say, I don't care about that if you want to, really, you can't stop me. We know just a little bit about Canaanite religion. Um, it's not that the chief deity is Baal or Baal, um, but, but that is one of the chief deities. Baal is a bull and lives in the sky, and Baal is thought to be in control of the rain. 
Now, now when you are growing crops in a desert, rain is critical. Too much floods everything, too little, and you starve, right? So they had a particularly special relationship with Baal. It's not like they, they thought he was the only God, but fertility of the land and of the rain was their principal concern, right? Um, so, so there's Baal, and Baal is an animal. Baal has a sister named Anat, who's the virgin warrior. She literally takes baths in human beings' blood. And Baal has a consort. It's not a wife, because they're not married. Um, but it's a lady, and her name's Asherah or Astarte. And, and you notice there's an Asherah pole we heard about. Um, Asherah poles are like telephone poles, or shorter, that you just stick into the ground. Um, Freudian uh, psychoanalysis would say that they're phallic symbols, and they represent basically the penetration of the earth, right, which is meant to make the earth fertile. And you can read Canaanite documents that says, and I didn't want to be crass, but I just want you to know how sexualized religion was, and, and more about that in a second, that sort of say that when it rains, that actually represents Baal's sperm hitting the earth, which creates fertility. Now, now that sort of makes sense figuratively, right, that that's what causes things to grow. I mean, so that's, that's sort of the, 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 the primal understanding. So... So that you know, in Canaanite religion, when you go to a temple, sure, there's offerings, and the offerings are designed to feed the gods. But the other thing you do as an act of worship, and if you read the source, you get this, you go to this temple and have sex with a sacred prostitute, and that encourages the gods to have sex, and then the earth is fertile. So Asherah is in the ground, Baal's in the sky. You want them to get together so that the ground grows stuff. Okay? And once again, the way you do that, you can see why the, the Hebrew, some of the Hebrew men were particularly attracted to this policy. When you had sex with a prostitute, you were worshiping God. Like It wasn't just fun. It was great that you would do that. You were helping the gods get this idea about what they needed to do. And you can read particularly the story of the source about how those were incentives for farmers. Priests figured out how you encourage people to work hard by doing this. And there would be this sort of principal virgin every year who would then be demoted to secondary cult priest-s status on, all the way down through the line. It's a, it's a really interesting read. If you've not read the source by James Michener, it's, it's really fine. I think it's probably his best book, quite honestly. Uh, all the stories are really sad. That just seems to be how he writes. I mean, there's really nothing happy in the book. Um, yeah, anyway, but, but, it's, but it's quite good. So, um, so here that there's no temple prostitutes here, and that's very different from Egypt and Canaan. And there's really not a, a, a strong idea in the text that God has a consort either. That is, there's not like a female deity that the God of Israel consorts with. Now pay attention as we keep reading, because sometimes that'll change. Asherah poles show up in the temple, which is clearly saying, oh, well, Baal has just been replaced by our God, and God needs to get with Asherah so things work. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Um, the other thing that is represented, and, and we read this already with, with Rachel, she steals her father's gods, they're called the Teraphim. Um, 
they're probably little headless, big-breasted statues. And again, these are, these are depicting the goddess Astarte or Asherah. People probably planted them in their fields, had them in their bedroom. Uh, there's, this probably, it's the number one abundant statuette we found in the ancient Near East. And again, that's an image of fertility, of nursing, of growing crops. You want it for your livestock and your plants. And it's sort of this sympathetic magic, if that sort of makes sense. It depicts fertility and nursing and growth, which is what you want for your fields and your flock and your household. Okay. That's just a little window on, on Canaanite religion and worship. And, and it helps you know, again, the Hebrew people go in and out and in and out of doing it, and they keep getting called to the quick on, on that. I don't know if that was too brief. Any questions on it? Again, you'll track, you'll track this as we read. You'll keep seeing elements show up. And that's why when you see things like Israel's playing the prostitute or Israel's unfaithful, the unfaithfulness is represented in figuratively that they're doing these other practices, but literally that they're cavorting with prostitutes at temples. Does that make sense what I'm saying now? So it becomes this biblical language about prostitution and unfaithfulness and infidelity revolves around, revolves around real practices. There were rarely um, prostitutes in red light districts. Prostitutes served as worship. So that's very different from how the world has sort of evolved, if that sort of makes sense. Um, one time I had a supply priest. He's a good preacher, I think. He just kept using the word fornication in his sermon. I think a lot of people didn't like it. But you know, um, the, the root of that word fornication, which is that good King James word for this, a fornix is an archway. A fornix is an archway. And that's where sacred prostitutes were in the Latin world, under the fornix. So when you went under the arch, under the fornix, you were committing fornication. Does that sort of make sense? A fornix was a red light in the Roman world. And that's just the root of our world. So that, 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 that shows up over and over again. It wasn't just the Canaanites that had sacred prostitutes. It was in the other religions as well. Okay. So now uh, if I can go back then... <clears throat> Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, a kosher killing today in the portion of the text here to talk about the unblemished uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, today, are they, do they follow that? It's a great question. So here, here's the, the, the first answer is nobody sacrifices animals today because there's nowhere to do it. So in the, the Jewish understanding, it doesn't really matter how ultra-Orthodox you are. The only place you can offer sacrifices to God is the temple. There's not one, right? So, so there are people, ultra-Zionists, who would like to rebuild the temple now. And in the 80s, right, there were some people that snuck over the Western Wall. They were totally... Um, blaspheming by doing this because they could have been stepping on the Holy of Holies at any point. This is why Jewish people don't go over there. But they were going to blow up the Dome of the Rock with TNT. 
so that they could rebuild the temple and have sacrifices again. Most Jewish people, though, aren't interested in that um, because it's been, well, 2,000 years just about since there was a place where you could do that. So, <clears throat> so now instead of, I mean, the rabbinic perspective is <clears throat> instead of offering sacrificial animals like we've read about, <clears throat> we study about them, and that teaches us something else to do. These started to become figurative. Now, if the temple becomes rebuilt, follow these practices again. But until then, you can't do it. All right, so, so now about when we talk about blemished animals, will a rabbi kill a blemished animal for human consumption? Yeah, I think so. Because it's, it's not like a Yom Kippur. You know, there's not the guidelines here. Uh, that's not what's being done. It's being done for food. Interestingly enough, some of the parts of the animal are, are never to be eaten still, um, <clears throat> like the, the filet mignon. If you're Jewish, you can't have it because it's right here on the animal, right? It's, it's in the loin, and you can't eat the loin. You can't eat up in the hip socket, right? There's just parts of the animal that can't eat. You know that, that, that issue where Jacob wrestles with God and his hip gets put on a socket, part of the explanation, definitely from a peace source, is that's why we don't eat the hip. But as I told you um, in that story, <clears throat> there's a good argument that what gets put on a socket is not his hip, but his groin, and you can't eat the groin either, and that eliminates the tenderloin, <laughs> which is just too bad because... <laughs> It's really good, right? <laughs> yeah, good, 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 good question. But, but, but definitely, that's that's. Um, say again. Do they really follow this still? Well, it's a great question. Do they really follow? It depends on what kind of Jewish person you are. In general, most Jewish people in the world only keep kosher during Passover week, which is why you'll hear the words kosher for Passover. And um, most Jewish people eat whatever they want the rest of the time. Now, my brother, who's orthodox, keeps kosher all year. And that's the orthodox perspective. But if you're conservative, definitely if you're reform, it's unlikely you do this all the time. Okay. Um, the other thing that I think is really helpful to start out up front is this idea of atonement. And the question is, what do sacrifices really do? So I want to do that categorically first and then come through and talk about the kinds of sacrifices and rules. Is that, is that okay? I'm, I may lose you here. Don't, don't get lost. This is really critical. So if you feel like you're getting lost, you definitely stop me and let's go back because this is the part that's really essential for us as Christian people understanding what's happened with Jesus. Okay. Now, first, it's helpful to know to think about the word sacrifice. A sacrifice is when you make something sacred. I'm, literally, that's what it means. Um, it's when you set something apart. <laughs> now, nothing has to die to be a sacrifice. I just, wanna, I just want you to think through this. If a firefighter goes into a burning building and pulls out somebody, we would say... What a sacrifice, wouldn't we? Sometimes we use an additional word where a fighter fighter tries to help and dies, and we might say that was the ultimate sacrifice to help us understand that the firefighters died, right? But people who go um, 
particularly soldiers, we would say that's sacrificial of them to go to a combat zone, right? I mean, these are words that we use. People who give large sums of money or time in ministry, we call those sacrifices, don't we? So I just want to make sure you know, sacrifice doesn't mean something has to die. Does not. <clears throat> the other thing that's important to remember is that God doesn't eat. God seems to enjoy the smell of certain things, but the Hebrew religion has never believed that God eats the animal. You could look at it really carefully. I mean, this is, this is the, the difference. There's no explicit reference to that. But remember that sacrifices in the ancient world, the parts of the animal they burn, are to feed the gods. Sometimes, I think, when you hear that God finds an aroma pleasing, it's getting really close to that idea, but the text never says God's eating it. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The text gets real close, though, um, and it's ambiguous, but Jewish people, rabbinic sense, have been really clear, God's not eating that. In fact, most of the sacrifices, notice, are eaten by the priests and the people. Right? It's food for us, not for God. The things that you sacrifice when you kill an animal like, are the blood, and that's God's anyway. And the reason you can't have it is because that represents the life of the animal. So really you're giving the life back to God instead of thinking that you could ever own that or take that yourself. Okay. The other thing that's important is that we often have really strong thoughts about atonement, especially when we read about sacrifice. I'm suspicious that the dominant interpretation of why animals are killed in the room is that the animal takes your place. Is that right? How many of you sort of think that the goal of the sacrifice is I'm putting my sin on the animal and the animal dies instead of me? Or have you heard that idea? Well, that's what Jesus did. I want you to wait on that's what Jesus did. Okay. I do. I want you to wait on that. That's even in some of the Native American religions. I want to tell you, this, is because, this has been the dominant understanding in Christianity since about a thousand. So for the first thousand years of Christianity, not the case. This idea is called penal substitutionary atonement. Let me see if I can tell it to you a different way. God is perfect, and God is completely just. And any time we do something imperfect, well, we've offended God's law. And the penalty for offending God's perfection and law at any one point is death. Death in hell forever. But what if somebody would take the punishment for you? Now, many of us in fifth grade read the book, The Whipping Boy. What if there would be a whipping boy who would take our punishment for us? Well, who would do that? The answer is Jesus since 1,000. And this is written by, what do you know, a lawyer named Anselm of Canterbury. His idea is that 
God's law is perfect, so there has to be a price paid, and Jesus has agreed to pay the price. Later, people have said, oh, that means Jesus takes our spanking for us because God has to spank somebody. I know you've heard this idea if you've been to church before. Uh, but you have to ask yourself, why would God have to spank anybody? I mean, if God is God and has unlimited power, why does something have to die? I mean, isn't God big and powerful enough to not kill something because it's upset? Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> now, the fact that I just asked the question means I, I can't belong to the church I grew up in. Because this was it. That was the whole reason. Now, there was another idea that came out about 100 years later. There's a Lutheran church with this name nearby. It's called the idea Christus Victor. It was by a theologian named Gustav Aulin. And the idea is, again, this is, I don't know if you've heard this idea before. The world was great until people sinned. And then the world didn't belong to God anymore. It belonged to the devil, the master of sin. How to get the world back? Well, God decided to trick the devil by sending Jesus to live under human law and never break it once. So Jesus was perfect, never sinned. The devil decided to kill Jesus. But since he was undeserving, Jesus went to hell and broke it open. Jesus was the bait with which God used to catch the nasty fish, Satan. And once Satan bit the hook, God reeled him in. Anybody heard that before? It's just preposterous. <laughs> because how could the devil ever own the world? <laughs> I mean, the devil's a created being. And we'll talk about the devil later. So this is some of the atonement stuff we go back and read into the Hebrew Bible because we've been told that's what sacrifice means. But I want to raise to you a different possibility. I don't know where else you'll read this. But do you remember that when God makes a promise to Abraham, God says, go get me a heifer and a lamb and some turtle doves and cut them in half. And then Abraham passes in between the pieces with a torch and there's terrifying darkness. And I told you that's the beginning of a covenant. And all covenants are not made. They can only be cut. So in Hebrew, you can never make a covenant. You can only ever cut one. Circumcision is cutting into the covenant, literally. right? And there's real cutting involved. I wonder if we couldn't view sacrifice as cutting ourselves back into the covenant. There's been transgressions where we've lived outside of the covenant, and now we cut the animal so that we can show our intention to live in covenant with God again. And what if Jesus, instead of taking our place and getting a spanking, is the one time all, hey, listen, God doesn't need you to keep doing that. God's covenant is eternal. Whether you keep it or not, God's covenant is eternal. 
The reason I want to talk about Jesus now is because I think most of us are interested in that. <laughs> and, and I want to suggest to you that the texts themselves don't say why <clears throat> you have to kill the animals. Did you notice that? There's never a why. There is a thing that you do it. And you do it in lots of circumstances. You do it when you sin intentionally. You do it when you sin unintentionally. You do it when you're thankful. You do it during your well-being, which is kind of like when you're thankful. And you do it with your grain, which is about your well-being and your thankfulness, right? And then you do it <clears throat> under some circumstances on Yom Kippur, right? <clears throat> and there's two different things you do on Yom Kippur. There's the Holocaust, and, and that is a word where you offer the whole thing. That's why the thing that happened to Jewish people in Europe is called the Holocaust, because of the quantity of people that were exterminated, right? It was almost like the whole body of Judaism in Europe was wiped out really close. Holocaust, biblical word, offering sacrifice for being burned up, all of it. <clears throat> but again, the text never says why. <clears throat> it's not feeding God. <clears throat> not feeding God. <clears throat> There's only one time that the sins of the people are laid on the animal. It happens one day a year. Yom Kippur. And do you know what happens to the animal once you lay your sins on it? You drive it away. You don't kill it. You cannot kill that animal. It has to live in exile. Now think through a little bit exile with me philosophically. You know, Socrates was charged with corrupting the youth of Athens. And I don't know if you realize he had a choice. He could leave Athens forever or he could drink the hemlock and die an Athenian. And Socrates chose to drink the hemlock. He chose to die an Athenian instead of losing his identity. It's almost like if you put the sins on an animal and kill it, they still are there. Instead, you put all your worries on the animal, and then it has to live in exile. It can never come back. You can never eat it. It doesn't even die where you live. It has to be gone. But that's the only time that sins get transferred onto something else. And notice, you don't kill it. Now, maybe I'm crazy. But if you don't like what I'm saying, at least pay attention. The Bible never tells you why you kill animals, just that you do it. And the one, yes, ma'am. But why? But why? So I think. Um, as my secondary reason. I usually do take the time to say, like... Well, yeah, I think that it's fair, but then... But, well, I think so this is a good question, right? We do what God tells us. Although I got to tell you, the rabbis upbraid Abraham for not saying, when God says, sacrifice your son, not saying, why? <laughs> or, God, that's a bad idea. And I think what I'm trying to get at is we often assume we know exactly why people killed these animals. 
to make an angry God happy. And that could be, I'm trying to tell you, a profound misread of the whole Hebrew Bible. I think a lot of times we read this and we say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, so angry. Because we've been told that's why you do it. But the Bible doesn't say that's why you do it. And I think it's important for us to pay attention to that. How much of this is what human beings think God wants, and how much of it is what God wants? And that's why I want to call up to you. The primary way covenants are made and restored is through cutting. That may not be satisfying for you, but it's different from the way I grew up. <laughs> and it's in sync with everything else we've read. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way most, the way I think of making, saying I'm sorry, is to give something that's very valuable to me. And at the time, the most valuable things were the the things that nourish the body. Mm-hmm. So if you were giving, if you were saying I'm sorry. Why would you not sacrifice something that was valuable to you? So, so this is a great idea, right? That, that one of the ways we show contrition, to use the, the, the word that defines the sacrament, right? We have confession that turned into reconciliation. And many of you know from Martin Luther, there was two things that were important since we're coming up on the 500th year of the Reformation. You had to have contrition and penance for it to work. So if you didn't have proper contrition, the penance wouldn't work. This drove Luther crazy, because how did he ever know he was sorry enough? If you didn't do penance, the contrition didn't work. (laughs) So you always had to have two things. This is still today. If you go to a Roman Catholic priest, they'll usually give you some penance to do. Say some Hail Marys and Our Fathers. Originally, penance was... You stole something, give it back with 25% interest. That's penance. <laughs> it's fixing what you, what you did, right? Um, but I want to, to say it, what, your, your idea is really interesting, but remember, who eats the animal? You do. You get most of it. You're not giving most of the animal to God you're getting the nutrition of the animal, and it's very likely you don't get animals any other time of the year. There is value because if you kill an animal, you're losing all its product. If it's a male sheep or a ewe, you're losing all the wool. If it's a ewe, you're losing all the milk and the cheese and the babies. Probably this is why males get offered more often. You only need one male to have a largely female flock. That's still true today, right? You order a bunch of eggs every year or chickens every year, chicks, the roosters you eat. <laughs> you want the hens to lay eggs. I mean, this is still how farmers do it. So if you order 50 chicks and 10 of them are roosters, you'll be having 10 chickens soon, right? Because if you've got 10 roosters, they're going to fight, they get nasty. 
you can only have really one rooster in a given pen or it just gets bad, right? So you eat them. You eat the boys, but, but notice even the boys are valuable commodities because you lose the wool. And in general, these are vegetarian people. I've told you before, most archaeological studies are saying 90% of your daily diet is a two-pound loaf of bread. The rest of it is some wine and maybe some pomegranates or something, but not meat. Meat is on festival days. Uh, that's true as well in the Greco-Roman world. You go to a temple sacrifice because that's when you get meat. We eat meat every day. People did not do that. It was just too valuable and hard to raise. So, so think through. You're giving it up, but you're getting most of it back. <laughs> And you have to do that because you can't preserve it. And that's another reason they didn't eat meat very often. And that's another reason you bring the whole village. Notice there's an injunction. You've got three days to eat and then you've got to burn it all. Because after three days, it's just going to be nasty. You know, you can salt it and make it last. But again, we're talking about an environment with no refrigeration, where temperatures can be really warm. We know there's other peoples in the world that made jerky. Maybe they did that too. But particular offerings, you've got to eat it all or burn it. Oh, that's in Psalms. You don't delight in sacrifice. I would bring it. The sacrifices God are a contrite heart. Mm -hmm. Is it that repeated in the New Testament too, though? Probably. But that's what I always thought. Well, God must have changed his mind. So this is a really good question. Like there's a God from the Old Testament. He's like completely different in the New Testament. And I always had conflict with that. Yeah. Because he was kind of a vengeful God in the, in the way I was taught, the way in my mind. And I want to try to resolve that tension by saying, maybe we changed our minds <laughs> about what God's like. Because it would sure be... It, it, or God changed our minds for us. I, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. But, but I do want to say this is important, and it's very Episcopalian of me to say, who wrote the Bible? And I mean it. Who wrote the Bible? Did God write it or did people? Well, most of us would say people wrote it. And then comes the question, in what capacity? Right? Did God dictate every single word? Martin Luther actually said not. Martin Luther said the Bible is like the manger. It holds Jesus, but it isn't him. Now, that's interesting to think about. Jesus never talked about some topics that I think are really, really important. He never talked about women's fundamental rights. I think he should have. <laughs> Ish. Well-ish. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <clears throat> yeah, but he never said stone the man instead. Man, if he just said that, <laughs> we'd be in a much better place, don't you think? <laughs> And, and I just want to say, right, the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions. So, so, so we've got to use in the Episcopal Church tradition and reason as well. And I know I'm spinning my wheels here a little bit, but I think this is really worth us thinking about what sacrifices do. And I know this is hard because we've been told what they do our whole church lives, but the Bible doesn't say that. <laughs> yes, sir. 
this time period, um, sacrifice often was uh, putting to death your firstborn son, and that sacrifice was to appease the gods? Um, that was to show that you had absolute obedience and fidelity. In, in it's reasonable thinking. If I give my best, I get the best back. And, and then as the Bible says, you don't kill your child, but you owe me a child. <laughs> you have to redeem your child, which is a little weird. So this move from, from the, the reason, the why that the child was sacrificed was to... I think that's, I mean, I, and, I, and I, I, listen, I haven't ever read a text that says, this is why Molech demands your son, or Chemosh demands your son. I, I'm supplying what I think is compassionate and sensible reasoning. You give your best to God so that God will bless you back, or, or aha, you're giving me your best, so we'll be in a great relationship. You know? And this is part of why you don't give God blemished animals. You eat those. But when you're going to give something and you're going to make it a sacrifice, make it unblemished. Make it your best animal instead of your worst animal, if that makes sense. But you can understand that reasoning, right? Because if you're like me anyway, I make mental calculus on gifts I receive. <laughs> Tells me what I'm supposed to reciprocate. <laughs> Within a $5 range, you know. <clears throat> Judy? Minus or plus? You, well, I, I believe in, in one standard deviation. You know, that's good statistical thinking. I, I, I had a little bit different thinking on this. And um, first of all, historically, these were people who were uneducated and were used to being told what to do. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, um, they're free, and now God is telling them exactly what to do. And he's laying it out step by step as to how you're supposed to do your sacrifices, how you're supposed to build a temple, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he's also dealing with the different tribes where parts of them will always have land to hand down to mm -hmm. their sons. But the Levites cannot. Right. They cannot grow food of any kind. So part of the reason of the sacrificing would be to feed the Levites. Absolutely. Because there is, I mean, in answer to your why, uh, besides the fact that this is for atonement, but also <clears throat> that it's the only way that one tribe will ever have nourishment to stay alive. Sure. But I, but I want you to notice the Levites don't just have the local butcher shop. The blood and parts of the animal get treated in, a, in, in, in sort of a cultic way. I don't mean like like a cult, but, you know, cultic is like the worship at the temple, right? So blood has to get splashed, and sometimes blood gets splashed on the people. But I, but I want you to understand, the Bible doesn't say that's because the animal took your place. The only animal that gets your sins can't be killed. Well, just think through that. The New Testament picks that up when they say that's why Jesus is killed outside the gates in exile. But, but you... If anybody kills the Azazel, they die. You cannot kill the scapegoat. You cannot do it. How do you keep it from coming back? It's a herd animal. 
Well, when you send it down into the desert, let me tell you, it's going to desiccate, that is dry up, really fast. And somebody's job is to really drive it out. I mean, not just like, okay, shoo. I mean, you've you got to follow it for some time to make sure it dies down in the wild. That your sin never comes back. The goal is, I mean, you know this, how do you fix a hole in a garment? It's darn complicated, you know? They don't have iron-on patches as if that worked anyway. When the warp and woof are fundamentally messed with, you just got, you, you've got to get rid of the hole somehow, and, and the hole can't come back to live in the garment of the society. It's got to be gone. Yeah, it definitely is old. So, uh, the why, to me, is kind of maybe a, uh, an interesting question, almost from an intellectual point of view, of what causes it to be com so common to so many religions? Well, I think, this may, I think this is very reasonable, right? How do you give something to God? And gifts do a lot of things for us. They're a way that we show pleasure and relationship and thoughtfulness. Gifts often are a way that we obligate people, and, and I mean that, right? I gave you something, so be nice. <laughs> I've told that to my kids before. <laughs> Think about all I give you. You ever said that to your kids in a moment of tiredness, right? Like, I made this meal and you didn't even eat it? Yeah, my mother wasn't Jewish. She didn't talk like that, but <laughs> you sort of you know what I mean, right? They're a way of obligating. Um, and I think what's important for us to think through a little more logically is, does God even need our gifts? Well, only weak gods need stuff from people, right? When we sacrifice things, does God need that or do we need that? And I think we really need it. <laughs> because we can't show affection and relationship apart from sacrifice. I just don't think we can do that. We don't love people purely and esoterically. We love people physically. We love people through our actions and through our shown commitment, not through some philosophical category. And I think it's the same for God. Does God need you to confess your sins to forgive you? Or do you need to do that to feel forgiven? I'm just, I'm just asking you to think through that. Yeah, I, I want to tell you it's probably very different from how we think of things today. We, we usually think, I mean, and we, when I say we, I mean people who have been raised in church. And you, you can read this in the Psalms. But remember, the Psalms are poetry and they have the least authority in the Bible. David, after raping that woman, says, Against you alone, God, have I sinned. I'm, I'm sorry, you sinned against the woman and her husband. 
you know? So, like, I understand that that's poetic and thoughtful, but it's wrong. <laughs> so, so I learned as a little boy that if I tell a lie to somebody else, I've principally offended God, which is crazy. <laughs> I've principally offended whoever I lied to and myself. <clears throat> Does that... <clears throat> the reading said... <clears throat> God is offended when we do bad things. Really? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think <clears throat> I'm not offended when my son or my daughter do things that I've taught them to be wrong. I just usually think the consequences of that are not things I want you to bear. I want you to have integrity, not so you can get prizes, but because I believe that's the best thing you can have. And when you sacrifice your integrity, sacrifice, isn't that interesting? We sacrifice our integrity or our reputation for things we shouldn't, to use that word. And what other gods are we worshiping? False ones, right? So just think through how sacrifice means lots of things. We can sacrifice our integrity because we thought we'd make a buck. When we do that, I'm not offended, I'm not embarrassed, but I am disappointed because I know I know, <clears throat> or I believe, and I trust that they could have had more joy in their lives if they hadn't done that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I'm also offended when my kids don't do what I think yeah. them to do. Yeah, because, because in some ways we read that as you've disrespected me as your, as your parent, your rule setter, your example. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I think that's pretty normal as parents, but I can tell you, when you have extremely malfunctioning children, you just can't, you can't, you can't look at that anymore, or there's, you know, your life is destroyed. Our kids make their own choices, and we give our kids roots and wings so that they can fly away. <laughs> but at a certain point, I did things my mom never taught me, She's probably wondering, what did I do wrong that my son's an Episcopalian? I mean it. I'm glad she's more worried about the Jewish boy. Um, I am. I mean, he just runs interference. But in my head, you know, that actually was a natural extension of my upbringing. Question, work hard, think. And, and you know, maybe she thinks it was a failure of her parent. I think it was a success in her parenting. You know what I mean? And that's the interesting thing. So for her to feel that, she didn't have to feel that way. It wasn't about her at all. I wasn't trying to rebel against my mom at all. I absolutely love her. You know, um, this is just what I think I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and there's some other stuff like this too. Oh man, when I came home with the earrings, my poor mom. Uh, it's very biblical of me though. You notice the men took their earrings off to make the golden calf, which implies they wore them. Um, <laughs> anyway. I think at our best moments of parenting, though, we're not offended by our kids. We're just sad for them. I think God does feel sad for us. And that's the word repentance that I mentioned for you before. But I one time had one of my kids do something and somebody said, I know you're embarrassed. And you know, like it was the Holy Spirit talking to me. And I said, I'm not embarrassed at all. I'm just disappointed. My child cannot embarrass me because I didn't do what they did. They did that, and I'm disappointed. 
but that doesn't hurt their status as my child or my love for them. And sometimes my love for them's proved that even at their worst, I'm there. Surely God's like that. Do you know what I mean? I think sometimes when we get offended, it's because we put too much of ourself into it, you know? Offense is normal for me. I just don't think that it's normal for God. So you're concentrating on the wrong word for me. But for, for me, this is about we're children of God, and so he needs something for us to feel. Since, since obviously, as you said, you feel bad for your kid because they're not mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm positive that we need stuff to feel the forgiveness God's always given us anyway. (laughs) I want you to really think about that claim. We need stuff to feel like God, to receive what God would give us anyway. Well, let's think through all of this business, right? I mean, and, and this is part of the heritage of the Reformation. Can you ever be sorry enough to make God happy? Or do you need to? I mean, does God delight in forgiveness? Or does God delight in make it up? Now, we understand that one of the ways we show that we're truly sorry is that we try to change. That we try to change. But does God need that to let the stuff go? I mean, I'm, just, I'm asking us to think really deeply theologically. Does God need anything we can offer, period? Does God need anything from us? If God needs stuff from us, then God's not omnipotent. So what you're saying is the sacrifices that were just described here really are for us, not for God. I believe they are for us. I know this is really controversial because I'm going I'm to use the S word too. I think the sacraments are for us, too. I don't think they're for God. I don't think God needs the Eucharist. I need the Eucharist. I think it's a good one, because the Eucharist is life-giving. If we do it right, it's life-giving to everybody around. But if we do the Eucharist wrong, it can be life-taking for people. If You're not welcome here. And that's where sacraments can be real dangerous. The sacraments are meant to be vehicles of grace. Vehicles. So that we can receive it. But isn't God trying to give us grace all the time anyway? I mean, isn't that the point of the Reformation? Is that this is not about what we earn, it's about who God is? The reason I need to confess my sins is because I need to confess my sins. I need to take them seriously. I need to know that if I say them and I'm sorry, that, you know, I can actually feel forgiven. But does God need me to do that? Yes, ma'am. See, I know, listen, I'm being a real heretical priest. You are. (laughs) But I'm not, actually. I'm resting on the primary sacrament is grace. Yeah. And I'm not sorry about it. Yeah, there'll be accountability for what you do. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you'll go to jail because we as a society can't handle that. And there's no punishment after I die then. 
Well, I think the question is, <clears throat> this goes way back to the Genesis question, right? What's it mean to be created in God's image? Or have we created God in our image? Is God like us? And what I mean is, the way I am is extremely retributive, right? You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. That way we get even. Does God look to get even? How can you ever be sorry enough when you kill somebody to make God happy? I mean, that's the question of the Reformation. Martin Luther said, you can never be sorry enough. And the good news is you don't have to. God's already decided forgiveness not based on what you do, but based on who God is. That's what Moses did the last two weeks. God, don't look on the people according to what they've done. Look on the people according to who you are. Merciful and forgiving. Do I believe that we need accountability? Absolutely. What does God's accountability look like? I don't know, because here's the truth. If God puts you in hell forever for something you did that lasted a lifetime, that wouldn't be just. I'm positive that's where purgatory comes from, because you don't go to purgatory forever. You just go for a bit. <laughs> that's much more just than the idea of hell forever, don't you think? I mean, even if you kill somebody, which is terrible, to go to hell forever for that? That just doesn't even make sense, does it? No judge would do that. I mean, that, that's not even proportional punishment. It's disproportionate. Where? Let's read it together. Okay. <laughs> we will. We will. Oh man, I'm, I'm afraid I've gotten way off the text. <laughs> Didn't I get way off the text? Yes, ma'am. Well, the thing that bothers me in what you're saying is God made man in his image. That's not just a physical being. That's also the emotional. That's also... Me too. What we've done, though, my, my history in the church has been not only is God like me, God is much worse than I am. Petty, vindictive. God's vision of justice is hell forever. I can't even do that as a human being. I can't send someone to hell forever. I want you to think through that. I think that's extremely mean of God to do. <laughs> I think that would be terribly that's mean. What, that's, what, that's just what I grew up with yeah. as a mean God. And so I really didn't want any part of that. But, but that's the older I get and the more I learn, that's just what that particular denomination made him. That's yes. not who he really is, which is what a long journey brought me here. And I think it's even fundamental to ask in all the stuff we're reading, does God want us to kill animals? 
in a, in a worship context. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Does God need that? And I, and I really want to phrase the question that way. Does God need us to kill animals? And, and, and you might say, well, no, because we had Jesus. Did God ever need that? Yeah. Because I see God as mean and everything's about death. And I didn't grow up with that. So I'm having a real hard time with the Old Testament going, I don't even want to study this. Well, I think it's hopefully helpful. And this is why I want to keep this together, right? It depends how we read this. One way we can read it is God's demanding and exacting and that this is what God's like. Another way we can read it is this is really about covenant that the animals were for the people to eat, not for God to eat. And another way is, this is how people approached God. What's interesting to think is that God would let us approach God in ways that are not perfect. What I mean is, what if God works with us? What if God says, that may not be the perfect system, but I'll meet you there. We don't have Ten Commandments. We have Ten Words. That's really important. And I won't ever say we have Ten Commandments because we don't. We have Ten Words because they're the minimum for living in a civic society. But remember, they're minimums. You can keep the Ten Words and never meet your neighbor. Never meet them. But surely God wants you to meet your neighbor. Surely God wants us to live in community. Not just a community where we don't take from each other, but where we give to each other. See, one of the ten words is not give to your neighbor. (laughs) That does not show up. But I think it should. I think that's what the scripture have in mind when they say love your neighbor as yourself. And I think the main reason is not to appease God, but so that we can enjoy life. (laughs) I mean, think about it. If you... God would have to have a real ego problem to get all upset if you worshipped a graven image. So so let me ask this question. So the sacrifice (laughs) of Christ, for you, if you believe kind of totally what you're saying, and that that was done... For us, does it not make it uh, diminished a bit because it's so much more um, large if it's God giving his son? Oh, I don't know. I mean, what if it is God giving us exactly what we needed to understand grace? What if God is so willing to work with us that God's willing to die? I don't think that's diminished. I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty loving. Remember, I'm not out to convert you to what I think. What I'm out to do with us is read the scripture and make sure we notice what's not there. What is not there is why you do this to the animal. I want to tell you, I think it makes a lot more sense to think through that this is re-covenant renewal every time than it is the animal takes your place. Because the only time an animal bears the sin of the people is on Yom Kippur and the animal doesn't get killed. Let me jump back into the text. (laughs) Oh, yes, sir. Go ahead. 
We can bog down on this, because this is the re again, what I want you to notice is this is the reason we're reading this. Because, again, many of us are categorically opposed to the Hebrew Bible already. People die, God seems to command it, there's all this weird sacrifice business, we don't need that, we don't do that, and I, and I want to offer you a different perspective. This informs everything that comes later. And if we think through the whys, and, and not just biblically, but also reasonably, I, I, I think it can be life-giving. I mean, they do. I, I think, and this is important, I'll just go ahead and say, we make marriage vows to each other, don't we? And, and that's a covenant. We don't do any cutting in a wedding, thank God. Um, but we do make vows, and that's supposed to be a covenant. So what happens when you break your vows? Well, there are consequences, and, 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 and I want you to think through, you know, in, in a long, long time ago, and, and, and this was influenced by some of the New Testament readings, and I'm going to tell you, this is really nasty, yucky stuff to me, that women would be abused by their husbands, and they'd go to the pastor, and the pastor would say, well, you go back. You go back so that you can, you can love them like God does. And I just worry about judgment for those folks. <laughs> Because the truth is, when you beat your spouse, you broke your vows. Now, how do you be reconciled? Do you even have to be? As a priest, I'd say, let me help you get out of there. I'm just telling you honestly. I would say, let me help you get out. Let's get you safe. God's not glorified in us getting killed by our spouse. Far the contrary, if we can do something about it. I wonder if some of this isn't when we break our vows with God, what do we do? We renew our covenant. I mean, I do know folks who have committed spousal abuse, who have reconciled. And I think it's great that they chose to do that. That they chose to do that, knowing they had the choice. Do you know what I mean? When a woman doesn't have a choice, I think that's terrible, even if it works out. But when they choose to be reconciled and do the work, I think it's great. I think part of this is the people trying to say, God, we really want to try to be reconciled. And this is the symbol that they knew. <laughs> is it perfect? No. Did God need it? No. Did they need it in their understanding? I think so. <laughs> does, that, does that follow what I'm saying? Does God love you more after you're baptized? I'd be really sad if the answer were yes. You know, I'd be really sad. Does baptism make you a child of God, or are you already one? Uh, seriously. Okay, so back to these texts. Notice that the ark is God's footstool. That means God stands on it, doesn't sit. It's weird that it's called the mercy seat because God never sits on it. Just want to make sure you know. God stands on the thing, and God is about 20 feet tall. And there's these weird texts where people behold God. Did you notice that? You can't see God's face and live, but some people do it. It's strange. It's like the Bible hasn't decided whether you can look at God or not. And again, sometimes we say, ah, it's inconsistent. So am I. 
So are you, <laughs> right? We're inconsistent, and that's not the worst thing you can be in the world. You know, there's this great story about Gandhi where um, he had a really strong position, and then a week later he changed it, and someone said, you're self-contradicting, and Gandhi said, no, 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 since last week I learned something. And <laughs> I just think that's really interesting. Um, I'm a little bit more like George H.W. Bush, who said, H.W., I have many opinions, some of them very strong, I often disagree with myself. Uh, <laughs> I want you to know whether you can look at God or not is up in the air, but I do want you to know, you'll read this later, God gets into a wrestling match with the Philistine god Dagon and ends up breaking Dagon's head off and hands off, and that's because the two gods have some kind of weird bodies and, and they get in a wrestling match and God wins. Um, so, so, so God is about 20, 25 feet tall. The temple is 30 feet tall so that God can stand on the ark and not hit God's head. We don't believe in that right now. I just want you, I just want you to know. We, we in general accept physical language about God is, is metaphorical. It's anthropomorphical. You know, do you really think God has a nose and a mouth and a beard? It might help us to imagine, but hopefully we get that's all figurative stuff. Um, not necessarily here. Sometimes we take our metaphors too strongly and too concretely, right? I mean, what does it mean to behold God in a body? At the other hand, I feel like I've seen God a bunch of times, right? I mean... Wow, sometimes when I look at my children when they're asleep, I don't know why, but I get a much better view when they're asleep than when they're awake. <laughs> but I feel like I've seen that. There's other weird stuff here, like there's a sapphire pavement to heaven. And scripture uses this a lot. You'll see this is, this is this mystical language. Jewish mystics way back when and still today believe in this chrysolite floor. You'll read this in, in Ezekiel that God's actually sitting in a chariot. We'll get there later, but, but the chariot's called a Merkava, and there's this Merkava mysticism, and they usually always include the sapphire or the chrysolite floor, and then later God's sitting on a throne chariot. Uh, mystical stuff, and if you know like Hasidic Judaism, that has a mystical strain in it, has this, has this thinking in it as well. Um, ark footstool, it's also Aaron. The bread of the presence, the way you consecrated bread was you just sort of put it where God's glory came, and by being in the room, then it was consecrated, right? Yes, it's un it, that's unleavened. It goes back to the Passover story, yeah, and that you, that you cook it before it rises. You know, remember, leaven's not bad initially. The reason you eat unleavened bread is you didn't have time. I mean, really, that's, that's the deal. So some people say the consecrated bread that we use in the Eucharist should never have yeast in it, but, but nah, <laughs> nah. Uh, the lampstand is called the menorah, and that is, that is very Jewish, and I want you to know it looks like this. And we've seen ancient images, like when the Romans loot the temple, they carve that into a victory column. The seven-candle uh, lampstand, seven is that good biblical number. A lot of times we get confused around the holidays with the Hanukkah. You know, there's eight nights of Hanukkah. And then there's one in the middle called the Shemesh that you use to light the other eight. That's not a menorah. That's a Hanukkah. So if it's got nine, it's for Hanukkah. If it's got seven, it's a temple image. Does that, does that make sense? 
Um, do you notice Moses' face comes down shining with glory? I told you in Jerome's translation, Jerome mistranslated and Moses grew horns. And if you've ever seen Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses, he's got horns. And hard to know if Michelangelo is mocking the Vulgate, honestly, because Michelangelo had some interesting theology and was sort of a quietly outspoken church critic. <laughs> um, what a difference one word makes, though, right? Um, Notice on Shabbat, you can't kindle a fire. You can't kindle a fire. That's weird, actually, because the first thing you do on a Shabbat is you light the candles. Do you know about this? The women light the candles first, and then the man says the, the kiddish, and then the children eat the challah, which is leavened bread, just so you know. Um, the glory of God is called the Shekinah, and that's like the residual glory. So when God goes somewhere, there's like a glory cloud. Just think that God has glitter. And, and, and you know this is a parent. Whoever invaded, invented glitter hates parents because you can never clean it. Um, there's always some of it somewhere in your How did it get in my hair? I have no idea. And, and this is like the Shekinah. It goes all over the place. Interestingly enough, in, in later texts, the Shekinah of God, which is feminine, Hebrew words that have the ah at the end are usually feminine or else they're directive, like towards somewhere. Um, the Shekinah becomes the Asherah or the Shekinah becomes the Holy Spirit, or the Shekinah becomes something else. So this is sort of, the Shekinah is sort of a really big deal. Okay, some of the sacrifices real fast. The Holocaust is the one animal you just totally burn up. Why doesn't, doesn't say, but remember, it's not taking the sin of the people. The Azazel is the only one that does that. The grain has to be leaven-free, and that's mostly the priests get most of it, did you notice? And they eat that. They make bread with it. They don't have land. They can't grow it. You put incense in the, in, in the, in the flour. That's weird. Anybody ever made frankincense loaf? Um, it is true, actually, that in the Middle East today, people eat frankincense and myrrh. Uh, supposedly, it has some kind of health benefits for you. Um, I think it'd be real crunchy because <laughs> it's resin, you know, it's, it's sap that's become hardened. Okay, um, these are just the different offerings, so I don't want to necessarily go over all that. Is that okay? Making restitution, that's important. Pleasing odor, you know, there's incense, turns out, that you can only use in the temple. You're not allowed to use it at home. So if you don't like church incense, good, because you can't copy it at home. Uh, Honestly, it has to do with the scarcity of it. At the time, frankincense and myrrh were really hard to find because, again, it's sap that's hardened in the desert. So you have to kind of go scavenging. It's kind of like finding morals. Does anybody know mushroom hunters go? Look, those are really hard to find. Um, we talked about the tithe, right? And again, I told you it actually doesn't make sense, the tithe uh, being a tenth instead of a twelfth or an eleventh. But again, you've got ten fingers, so I just think that's an easier calculation, right? And the tithe is really for the community. Notice how you test a prophet. If what they say comes true, it was from God, and if it isn't, you kill them. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, Micah makes a lot of predictions that don't come true. And the people still hold him as a prophet because they think he's talking figuratively, not literally. So, that, so that's interesting. Um, I do want to tell you, though, that prophets aren't just soothsayers and Ouija board readers. They're not just predictors of the future. Biblically, in general, there's different, the word prophet evolves. So initially, yes, there are people who cut sheep open and read the liver, 
and they look for omens from God, we find all these liver omens from Babylon that tell you how to read a sheep's liver or how to read tea leaves. Um, but later, a prophet becomes not someone who foretells the future, but who foretells a message from God. So a prophet is the mouthpiece for God. And that is why you'll hear Martin Luther King Jr. referred to as a prophet, because I think his message was, was relatively godly, you know? Interestingly enough, he wasn't a great husband. And we've realized, though, that the words can be good even if not all the life was, you, you know? I mean, that's just helpful, helpful to know. I'm out of time already, you know? We talked all about all this stuff. Um, you want me to breeze through this in five more minutes? Sure. Ten? Sure. No more than ten. These are the Jewish festivals, and what's interesting to notice is that different books have different feasts. Deuteronomy has three. We get more from Leviticus. And if you're Jewish today, there's a couple more than this. Um, interestingly enough, um, the Essenes, who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and lived in Qumran, have other ones as well. I'll tell you about that in a second. But essentially, the way you need to read the Jewish calendar is that... <laughs> even though there's three different New Year festivals because Passover's New Year, by the time we get to Leviticus, there's Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year. And, and, and modern uh, Jewish understanding, this is when God writes your fate for the next year, writes it. Ten days later comes Yom Kippur, which is when God seals your fate. So you've got ten days to do repentance. We do it for 40. They do it for 10. But notice, this is like Jewish Lent. And you'd better do it, otherwise your, your fate gets sealed. Make sense? Yom Kippur is the only day a year where you have to fast. Uh, Yom Kippur, as I said, is when you lay your hands on the goat that's called the Azazel. Now that's interesting that it's called that because there's a book that didn't make it into the Bible called one Enoch. It almost did, and it's in the, it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, like there's eight copies of it. Uh, it's really long. You, you, you can read it. It's kind of freaky. Um, but it basically goes back to the Jewish legend that there are these heavenly spirits that rebel against God by having sex with women and producing like superheroes, and those spirits get chained underneath the earth, and the leader of those spirits is called Azazel. The scapegoat, that's what it means. When you read in 1 Peter that Jesus ministers to the spirits under the earth, that's what it's talking about. So that Jesus' ministry is not just for us, it releases even the bound up angel things. It's sort of interesting, right? That, that, that folks believed in that. <clears throat> John Milton even uses that word a couple of times in Paradise Lost. How interesting. Um, that's Yom Kippur. Passover we talked about two weeks ago, right? And all the stuff that goes on with that. And it's a harvest festival. And, and remember what I told you, in the lunar year, there's 254 days, I think. Lunar months are, are 30 days. In, well, okay, I'm, I'm getting off on that. I don't remember the number. 254, which, which means it's 11 days too short, right? So every three or four years, they add another month in, another lunar month, to catch up with the solar year, because Passover always has to be, has to be in the spring. 
Ramadan doesn't, which is, if you've noticed, the Islamic calendar is lunar as well, and they never add another month, which is why Ramadan could happen any time during the year. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Passover is also on a different day because every year, uh, because later um, uh, Jewish folks go to a solar calendar that's based on 364 days, which will move the day, uh, will actually keep the same day every year, but then what do you have, what, every, every 30 years, you got to do something or Passover ends up like Ramadan in the middle of winter. Okay. Um, other harvest festival is like first fruits. The, that's called now Shavuot. Um, and and it's, it's just a planting celebration. Then there's this one called Trumpets, which happens 50 days after Passover. We, we call that in the church Pentecost, which means 50. What do you know? It's another harvest celebration. Um, if you're from Qumran, you go 50 days after Pentecost and you have a wine consecration because that's usually when the grapes are ready. And then 50 days after the wine festival, you have an olive oil one because that's when the olives are. So, so they had holidays that the other Jewish folks didn't have. And interestingly enough, there's a lot of scholarships that saying some of the most marked divisions between the Sadducees and the Pharisees had, had as much to do with religious holidays than anything else. This is true in the Orthodox Roman Catholic tradition as well. We have different dates for Christmas and Passover. We're not, sorry, not Passover, but Easter. We do it on different days, and that's part of why there was the split, because we, we fought about when to celebrate Easter. Um, Sukkot is one of the big, big three festivals. That's the one in the fall harvest, so that's got to be in the fall. And that's the one where you, you build a sukkah, which is like a sort of a pergola that you sleep under for a week. I mean, you can tell if somebody's Jewish for sure if they build one of these in their yard, right? Um, not everybody does this. I, it's kind of nice unless it rains. You, you will get wet because you can't put a roof on it. You have to be able to see the stars. It's to remember you, remember, reattach you to the story of wandering in the desert right? Homelessness, right? So that you're attached to that every single year. Um, notice what you don't see on here, Purim, uh, which if you know, that's from the book of Esther, sort of like Jewish Halloween. That's where you dress up and you drink a really a lot of wine. Um, and you don't see Hanukkah. And helpful to know that Hanukkah isn't a real holiday anyway. It's just Sukkot celebrated about two months later. I'll tell you about that later. Um, but, but nobody celebrated any Hanukkah for a long, long, long time because there wasn't any Hanukkah for a long, long, long time. Uh, Hanukkah is Sukkot. They tried to celebrate it at Sukkot and they couldn't. So then two months later, they celebrated Sukkot and that's Hanukkah. It was Purim. It was Purim. That's right. No, we actually were there that day. That's when people were out in the streets in costume in Israel. Yeah, mostly young people in the costume. A lot of drinking. Just to, so you know, you're supposed to drink so much wine that before you go to the synagogue or in the synagogue, you can't tell the difference between the name Mordechai and Haman. That's a lot of wine. <laughs> okay. As he told you, though, Deuteronomy has different festivals than Leviticus does. Deuteronomy has three. Leviticus has one, two, three, four, five, six. 
Okay, look at that. I covered all the festivals. Did I cover all your questions? Probably not. Probably not. Okay, well, I'll see, I'll see you next week. Good news is we're getting out of some of the technical reading, and I'm going to advise you in advance. Um, you're probably not really going to like the reading that you do next week about Joshua and Judges. Um, some of it really should be rated like NC-17. I, I notice you're all over 17, so you'll be okay, but be prepared. I mean this not jovially for some horrific stories. Horrific. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what they may or may not mean next week, okay?